1975, and the National Skateboarding Championships are well underway. Scores of highly skilled riders are impressing judges with their 360s, handstands, and nose wheelies. The notorious Z-Boys from Venice walk towards the freestyle area. Their radical and unconventional skateboarding style has made them local legends, and the only girl on the team is about to disrupt the competition and make her mark. I knew I couldn't go back. Your you just wife. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. stuck even Luck deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That I? was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. In skateboarding, it involves when you're trying, sometimes you'll hit the concrete and you just go, well, I'm going to do this. Peggy Okai, the only female member of the original Zephyr competition skateboarding team, was made famous in the award-winning documentary Dogtown and Z-Boys. The talented and unconventional Z-Boys were rebellious. Their style influenced and radically shaped the skateboarding culture of the 1970s and became the trademark vertical skateboarding that led to today's X Games. Peggy Okai takes us back to the Dogtown days and her life in a culture where she learned to fight and take the hard knocks for what she believed in. Life lessons she needs today in her crusade to help save dolphins and whales all over the world. This is Peggy Okai, and we are talking in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> California, <yay. laughs> Peggy, I want you to take us back to... 1975, okay. pick up on the story without giving away the end, but okay. a, a pivotal moment in your life, it seems. Our team, we got into a few cars and left early in the morning, drove down to Del Mar for our first skateboard competition together as the Zephyr team. We, when we arrived, we saw the, this polyurethane-coated wooden platform, and that was supposed to be the freestyle area, and we thought, this is interesting. This is not the streets that we're used to skating on, but we'll work on that. And then there was also the the slalom course, which was not an actual hill uh, that was paved. It was a man-made wooden hill <laughs> slope. <laughs> we, we thought, wow, this is all very artificial and, and this is going to be interesting. And uh, we, already, we, we had already practiced several of the, the standard tricks, things such as the nose wheelie and the 360s, you know, that we'd spin. And, yeah. But then we, we were already in this whole mode of surfing as if we were skate, uh, skating as if we were surfboarding. Yeah. Surfing. And so we just skated the way we wanted to in the competition. I mean, you, you guys were really ahead of your time because you were doing things that people... They hadn't connected maybe mm-hmm. that movement with mm-hmm. the idea of skateboarding. Because right? mm-hmm. I look at the way you were moving, and nobody was moving like that back in 1975. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I would say. We we really ad- admired really the more radical up-and-coming surfers of the time, like, like uh, Larry Bertelman. And he was known for very low style, carving around on the wave, doing cutbacks and things. So we emulated that. And we called that move the Bert. That's good. B E R T. It's Bertelman, and so we did things like that, as well as being able to do the the previously typical tricks. And 
So we, we proved ourselves as, you know, we, we were going to do this and we we're going for it with even more. Kind more of fun to be, style. kind of fun to be on the cutting edge of something that became part of the zeitgeist, right? Where you're not necessarily reinventing the sport, but you're reinventing the way that the sport or that activity was done. Yes, we, we reinvented the movement of it. Yeah. It wasn't sort of this sort of stiff um, clickety clack movement yeah. <laughs> like the previous tricks. Didn't you do like the, 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 the original, original skateboarding technique was sort of sort of tap the board? There were things like this, and we were able to do that too. Right. But we, we also were more into the flowing movement. And you had such yeah. a, a beautiful uh, flow on the board, like you, almost like you were dancing, and, and, and that flexibility. Um, People, when they first saw what you were doing, what was the reaction to it? I got some grief. <laughs> yeah, from some of the other Why other were girls. Why they giving you grief? Because because they because I wasn't necessarily doing every one of the formal tricks that were previously done, and maybe they felt threatened or something. I don't know. But it looks so beautiful. Thanks. I mean, when you see the footage now, do you do you look at that and just go, "Wow, we really were doing something." Yeah. Unique. Did it, it feel like that when you were it, doing it? It did, and it <laughs> it was just uh, just enjoying, just having fun, moving as if we were surfing. It was the the love of surfing, and the w- surfing is so great. The, yeah. You know the feeling of dropping in on a wave, and the the exhilaration of it, and then t- making a turn on the wave, and so we really aimed to emulate that. We lived in an area where the surf was not that great. So it was, which was where uh, Santa Monica area, and it, you yeah. know, because people think of Santa Monica, they think the you know great surfing, but it's not it's not that good. It's not that good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you guys were doing things on concrete and on asphalt and over curbs, and so yes, you've got the movement, but it's pretty unforgiving if you mess up, right? We would have our falls, but we would get up and keep working on it. <laughs> And, and so in 1975, uh-huh. were, were there a lot of girls skateboarding? Not really. I'm sure there was a lot of mm. admiration, too. I mean, they must have looked at you and thought, wow, that's so cool to see a girl like, think, killing it yeah, like that. Yeah, it was funny because I think so. You know, I didn't really think too much about it. And then it was when we'd seen each other after the documentary was, was released and we'd be our adults now. And yeah. I'd hear one of my teammates saying, Peggy used to go really fast down those hills and things like that. I'm going, oh, they never said that to me. When <laughs> and no helmets, right? They were, no helmets. They, they, you, no helmets. You could no. just taking these huge risks. Yeah. When, and when you look back on that period, mm-hmm. is it, do, you, do you smile when you think about it? What, what, do, you, what do you remember of, of, of that era? Because yeah, it was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of fond memories of it. You know, this things when a, a few of us members of the team would we'd, we'd all we'd all you know put the word out okay we're going to meet and we're going to practice at this school or we're going to go down that hill and we'd wind up bombing some hills together or jumping over the fences of the you know the schools together <laughs> so there was skating. a rebellious part of it that you kind of liked not that i necessarily liked jumping over the fences but i was good at it yeah, good at jumping over fences <laughs> climbing over fences and yeah. good at skateboarding yeah i was yeah. pretty good at climbing over fences so did you was and that i still your... am <laughs> back in the day what was your favorite thing to do bomb a hill or was it to do tricks 
in a pool or I liked skating the banks of the schools a lot because there were some there were some really nice banks and it was a lot like surfing where you're on a continuous wave just moving up and down and so give us a picture of what Dogtown and when we refer to Dogtown mm-hmm. I guess maybe start with what is Dogtown or what was Dogtown the Dogtown kind of came up to be honest, as a name that was given to the area, we just knew it as the Venice area. Yeah. And it was a pretty rough neighborhood at that time. Yeah. (laughs) Where it wasn't so safe at night to walk around, and you wouldn't want to be around there alone at night. (laughs) Venice, they (laughs) say... It's kind of seedy. Yeah, the the Venice uh, Venice Beach, Santa Monica Uh Bay, they Uh say now is the biggest, if not one of the biggest tourist attractions in America like millions of people come there Mm -hmm, every year mm -hmm. and when you go there it's this idyllic it almost looks like a Hollywood movie set yeah and 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 yet (laughs) full of characters full of characters (laughs) yet I understand it wasn't that long ago Mm -hmm. that the old peers that Mm -hmm. dated way back into the 30s the remnants of those peers were sticking out and it Mm -hmm. was this gnarly place where like you said it wasn't safe to walk around. What, what was it about Dogtown that made it conducive to, to the birth of this new skateboarding style? Uh, we all had this part of us that wanted to ar- express ourselves. And that was a good thing to do, yeah. to, be, to be expressing ourselves. Because, um, you know, as in the documentary, they said that a lot of the team members had, came from broken homes and things like that. And, and, I, and I wasn't from a broken home, but I... I was very happy to have that opportunity to express myself through skateboarding. So we would come up with, with like I said, different ideas and places. And How did you discover skateboarding? Do you remember the first time you ever got on a skateboard? It was when I was very little. Yeah. I was about oh, seven years old. And this was back when there was a manufactured skateboard. Yep. And uh, they sold them at a... A store that was department large department store type of place that w- was similar to our modern day Target store, yeah. and they were called the Black Knight. That was the name of the board. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the Black Knight, and they came with these wheels that were basically sort of compressed sand or something. They were like I called them the Fred Flintstone wheels. Because they're very hard. <laughs> and, and not very forgiving. No. And not a lot of grip. I understand they were kind of slippery. Yeah, but it was the, the main thing was that, that any time you hit any little pebble, your wheels would stop. And then the passenger would go flying. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't like falling <laughs> into a wave. Line. Yeah. It was like falling on concrete. Yeah. So how does Peggy then make a transition from being this, you know, street skater as a tomboy young woman and then being invited to to skate with these phenomenal young skaters as part of the Zephyr skateboarding team? I I had just started surfing maybe less than a year before. And since the waves aren't that good around the Santa Monica area, as I was saying. So you keep saying, yeah. There's, there was skateboarding and the wheels became safer, the urethane wheels. So I thought, why don't I practice my surfing moves on a skateboard? And I was practicing down Bicknell Hill, the famous hill that we... Bicknell Hill, which... 
People who come from Santa Monica to Venice, they know it well. They've got to see McNally Hill. That's quite a run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would I was skating down that hill just to keep my my surfing motions in, in practice. And one day, a young boy came over to me and said, you know, on a skateboard, and he said, "Would you like to be on a skateboard team?" And I went, "Oh, hmm, I guess, yeah." And he said, "Come to the Zephyr Shop," and and. I think that he was probably sent by one of my my future sponsors who probably had seen me skateboarding and said, tell that girl to come over and... <laughs> Be a part of this. Yeah. So you get invited on the team, and how old were you at that point? I was about 20, 19 or 20 around that okay. time. Okay, and you I was were... the oldest member of the team. You were the you really? Arc. Are you serious? No, I, I was the oldest member of the team. There weren't any other girls on the team, and I didn't feel any any kind of odd odd vibes or anything from the the teammates we just all were so focused on yeah. on skating and wanting to to skate and and it was exciting that we were on a team and getting our skateboards for free and <laughs> yeah so is that how it worked back then basically you got free stuff yeah yeah, that, that was, was the deal, it. right? Yeah. Okay, because I was going to mm-hmm. say, you guys look so cool. For those people who haven't seen the documentary, mm-hmm. uh, Dogtown, it, it was brilliantly done, really, really beautifully done. Yeah. And the footage, what a treasure for, mm. for that footage to exist, right? And, yeah. And for it all to be encapsulated. Yeah, it was really, as you say, brilliantly done. It and really so was. it's wonderful to see that as a, a reminder of, of the fun times that I had. You yeah. know, I, it's, it's like I say it's a walk down memory lane whenever I see it. It talks about the, the dog town back in the day, back in the mm-hmm. 70s. And a drought really helped to push, I guess, mm-hmm. the, the realms of possibilities for this and, and the skills of of all of you as skaters it was a it was definitely a fun there's time. something about watching it that makes me want i, I wish i was there to see it uh-huh. it just looks wild and free and yeah i don't know if i would have ever had the nerve to go bombing down a, a hill like bicknell but uh i sort of wish i could have seen it uh, now, well there's other hill is even steeper is that right <laughs> yeah i can't remember the name of that street but i was going that looks really familiar i think that's the one we used to bomb and we used to keep an eye out you know watch out for other cars and warn each other okay it's clear you know and so how'd you stop by the way because it just comes to a t intersection at the bottom right i yeah i don't remember how we stopped i think that we just would try to time it with the lights or something so oh you time it with the lights you'd be going through the intersection i think i think that's how we did it. <laughs> sounds a little illegal to me especially now it would be what was the camaraderie like between you all were you kind of maybe pushing each other like you'd see somebody do a trick they'd see you do a trick and then you were wanting to emulate that and take it up mm-hmm, a notch mm-hmm. how, how did that all work it was just this energy that that was just this ever-expanding sort of energy we we would climb over the fence and get into the school and start skating the bank and we'd all just take our runs we'd take our turns and and watch each other and just keep going and going and and that's where when people asked me about well how did you feel as the only girl on the team did you feel isolated or something and I'd say no because we were just so focused on 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 the energy that was generated the, that whole excitement and, and pushing each other just by doing just doing our own thing, pushing ourselves, and it was really great because um, at uh, an event a few years ago, one of my my former teammates, Jim Muir, he said, "Yeah, 
Peggy used to go really fast down those hills. <laughs> so it's a real endorsement that you were legit. It was really inspiring and fun to watch them. Jay was so fluid. That scene in Dogtown and Z-Boys at the Del Mar contest when, he, when, when they play the Jimi Hendrix song. Yes. Yeah. So, so, but just take us back to that time because okay. the, 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 in the film, they sell mm -hmm. it so well as this really crazy romantic time where mm -hmm. there's a drought in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and, and the pools are empty basically mm -hmm. around what Santa Monica and Venice. And so Residences. this then opens an opportunity for what? For the boys to climb over the fences, empty the pools. Like, how did you go empty somebody's pool to go? I, I did not. I did not empty any pools. Okay. You just skated them. <laughs> well, actually, I did not. You know, this this whole thing about skating the pools was very, very hush-hush. Yes. Because, you know, these guys were trespassing. Yeah. <laughs> well. and, and so... I didn't hear, I, I was hearing about it, and then one day Jay called me yeah. and said... And Jay is... Jay Adams, my my, my favorite teammate, and he yep. calls me, he goes... And he was he didn't have a driver's license at that time. He was too young to drive. <laughs> so I was the chauffeur. He'd call me sometimes, oh, we're going to meet at this school, we're going to do that. And so I'd pick him up and we'd go. And he goes, there's a pool in... I forgot where he said it was. I go, okay, and I went and picked him up, and then we, we went to this pool, just he and I, and we, you know, we got into the backyard, and it was square, but we tried it, and it wasn't very good. <laughs> Soon, the Z-Boys were scouring neighborhoods all over Los Angeles for oval-shaped pools, dragging with them hoses and water pumps to drain them out. It was in these empty backyard pools that this small group of radical skaters took their sport to an entirely new level, pushing each other to go higher and higher a move that gave birth to the vertical skating we know today and featured in the extreme games. By the time that the, the boys, you know, were skating the dog bowl, the famous dog bowl that was in the documentary, Yes. I believe that I was already out of the scene by then, that I'd already moved up to the Santa Barbara area to go to UCSB and do my thing there. So they had that great time. <laughs> yeah, it was really mind-blowing, yeah. right, yeah. What, what took place. But I kept skating. I was skating on the campus. Okay, so you you you're out. Once you're out of the skateboarding scene, mm -hmm. you go back. You you continue with your studies. Mm -hmm. When I was still at UCSB studying the uh, with the interest in studying animal behavior, I was an environmental biology major and taking different classes. and And I really felt very still connected to my my concerns about the environment and saving the environment and my love for whales and dolphins and so i started of course doing paintings of dolphins and whales and wanting to convey hopefully an increase in appreciation about them when i was going for my degree in painting at college of creative studies at ucsb i went you know i dropped out you know ages before went through various junior college programs and studied different forms of of the the arts and then ultimately went to College of Creative Studies and to get my degree in painting. But in my senior year, I learned about this thing called environmental art. We need more people like yourself who are creating awareness. And I know now you live in my, well, spend some of your time in my home country of New Zealand, mm -hmm. and you're doing something to help protect dolphins. And, mm -hmm. and I wondered if you could tell us about that. Yeah. I, I know the Hector's dolphin, which is a it's a smaller dolphin. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding it lives mm -hmm. off the the coast of 
Canterbury, uh, uh, near Akaroa. Mm-hmm. South Island. In the mm-hmm. South Island. Seen pretty much around most of the South Island, I believe. Yeah. Uh, that the, the Hector's dolphin, Cephalorhynchus hectori. That's the world's smallest dolphin. And how are they doing? How's the Hector's dolphin doing? Oh, the Hector's is listed endangered. And, and this, why is that? I mean, New Zealand, you, you know, you would hope that they would be wanting to protect them. There's an mm. isolated part of the world down the bottom yeah. of the world. The primary cause of death, over 90% of the cause of death of the Hector's and the subspecies Maui's dolphin. Yes. Which is found only uh, on the, pretty much the west coast of the North Island. The, they are, the primary cause of death for them is drowning in gillnets through the commercial gillnet fisheries as well as recreational gillnetting. So mm. they're, they're called set nets that the recreational fishers use. And they set, they have these stakes with the gillnet and they you know, stretch it across kind of like a volleyball net, I guess you could say, but on the level of the water. And they, they set them out there uh, during the high tide and the fish come in and then they get caught in the gillnets as the tide goes back out. And sometimes the, those stakes become un unsettled and then they get washed out to sea and that's when the dolphins get caught in them that's one of the ways but i think it's more so the commercial fisheries using gillnets so gillnet trawling gillnet trawling so it's off the back of a boat and mm-hmm. it's being trolled down uh right on the surface of the uh, underneath yeah, i'm not or? exactly sure how far below the surface and but it is the gillnets because they're they're Literally invisible once they're underwater. They're it's very it's hard made to out see. of a like, like a um, monofilament line. Yeah, b- like which is the same line. as fishing line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, very fine. And then what happens is the fish, their gills get caught, and that's why they call them gillnets. Uh, yeah. So, of of course, dolphins need to surface that to to breathe. So mm-hmm. they literally just drown. Is that mm-hmm. what's happening? I I would ban the use of gillnet uh, as a technique in in the entire known habitat of the Maui's dolphin and then implement alternative fishing methods and support the fishermen in using alternative fishing methods. And what would those be? Are they as efficient as the existing method? Or what's the, what's the resistance to doing something, doing it a different way? I think that it still goes back to the government not having the will to finance the change. To helping the f- mm-hmm. to helping the fishermen mm-hmm. make that transition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there are conservation organizations that have been involved in actually studying and proposing these alternate fishing methods that are very viable, and being cognizant of the fact that the fishermen still need to make a living, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Because yes, that's the As challenge always, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's mm-hmm. you can't just Economics rip and things, yeah. And so there there are alternative fishing methods methods that are safer for these dolphins, and it's going to take some money to do that and for it to become law to manage the the situation as far as the, this type of fishing technique so what what is it going to take is it going to take a a change in in government do you, i mean do you see any hope in the change with the new new zealand's got a new government now do you feel like there's some hope there or what what i've been feeling some hope with the new government I'm still not seeing the action, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens because with the previous government, there was very little hope, and hopefully with the new government, which had promised that they would look after the Maui's, that uh, they'll follow through on their promise. What is it about these dolphins living that's so important? Every species has its role, and when you start taking out one species that has its role, then something's going to happen. There's going to be a whole 
that a void basically in in the whole key of things, the whole way things work. I tell people that that it they can just look into their heart and think about what they care about the most. And it and I say that, you know, while I'm campaigning to save dolphins and whales, it's not that I'm trying to get everybody to come and save dolphins and whales. Of course anybody who cares about them, I'd love for them to, to participate. But there, there's there's a lot of things going on uh, going on on the planet that that can use some help. Things like youth programs, getting kids out, you know, and doing things besides watching TV and playing video games all the time. Well, you know, yeah. starting from such a young age where you were part of a movement, mm-hmm. um, now you're part of this environmental movement. Mm-hmm. But, um, clearly, there's something in you that 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 you have some passion, you have some desire to be a part of mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. And and I guess whatever it was you learned back in those Dogtown uh, years, you've 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 taken that into now your passion for environmental science. Yeah, yeah. It's uh you know, I say that really it's about passion and tenacity. Yes. <laughs> you have to be tenacious if you're a skateboarder. <laughs> So, so let's you hit just the concrete go, and you get back up. <laughs> yeah, I, let's go back to that mm. time in 1975 when you were a part of this this movement and this this change. Um, great training, maybe for the tenacity you need now mm. to 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 where you are. Sometimes mm-hmm. I guess feeling like you're hitting the pavement and you uh-huh. got to get up and yeah. and go again. And also just the idea that you were a woman uh-huh. and. You know, times have changed dramatically. I mm-hmm. think of the the world that my daughter's growing up in mm-hmm. compared to say, she's about around the age you were back in 1975. Uh-huh. Very different world. I I would say that we were just really inspired, as I said, by other surfers because we really wanted to be surfing and yeah. we loved the, those more more radical styles that we were seeing and so we were inspired by something as I've been inspired by dolphins and whales and then we had this passion to pursue that expression of of what we really were inspired by and and in in skateboarding it involves when you're trying sometimes you'll hit the concrete and you just Go well. I'm gonna do this, and you're just so determined. You're gonna you're gonna keep going, and that's how it is. For I I ask people to just follow that passion, you know. Look at what inspires you, and follow that passion. You know, it's it can be very discouraging. There's a lot of bad news. It's always bad news. There's tons of bad news out in the world, but there's also good news. Yeah. And I love those victories. I embrace them when I read something in the news and. It, things that have happened over history. The, whoever imagined that the Berlin Wall would come tumbling down, right. or that after over forty years, apartheid in South Africa would end? Yeah, <laughs> you so know, change can happen. Yeah, yeah, and then and then in the in the realm of of caring about animals, in over nineteen countries, twenty countries now, at least twenty countries, the use of wild animals has been banned in circuses. And Times are changing. That I guess leads us to another passion project mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. right now which is Lolita is mm-hmm. that correct mm-hmm. and tell us who Lolita is Lolita is a lone female orca that lives in the Miami Seaquarium she was captured almost 48 years ago August 8 1970 was the date of her capture and so, how long does an orca typically live for well 
there's estimates that the females live roughly about 50 to 80 years. Okay. And the males don't live quite as long, at, at least the resident orcas that have been studied in one area. And there was a female orca that was recently presumed dead, passed away, because they hadn't seen her uh, enough times you know, to go, oh, she was always hanging out with this other orca, and we haven't seen her, and her name was Granny. And she was about 103 or 104 years old. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And the female orca that is presumed to be the mother of Lolita is about 87 years old right now. So there's a good chance that Lolita will live a very long she time. She could. Yeah, yes. she's got those genes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's, she's currently captive. Mm-hmm. And you want to change that? I do. I... I learned about her and I felt really deeply moved about her story and so what are the chances that Lolita is going to get out of captivity and can an orca like that be released back into the wild I mean do they know how to survive well there's a number of scientists marine scientists cetacean uh, scientists who have said and I agree that it's a case-by-case basis depending on on where an orca was born if they were born in captivity they don't have the cultural connection that's required to live to survive in the wild on their own and they don't have their pod that they originated from to be reunited with but lolita who is also called tokite that's her original name tokike tokite is it, is it a japanese name? no it's a name uh from the area of the pacific northwest where she was taken uh, from native american uh-huh yeah yeah, and it means, uh, there's a few interpretations, but my favorite one is Beautiful Lady Shining Waters. Uh-huh. Because the veterinarian that looked after her when she was captured was very impressed by her, and he said that she was very courageous and a very special one. And she is special because she, besides one other female orca, is the longest living in captivity. All of the rest have died very soon, like within within 10, 15, 20 years of capture. So These she's, animals just don't belong they don't, in captivity. But she's amazing, and she, she inspires me. D- is she, but, what's her spirit like? Is, is she, do you feel like she is depressed, or is she, what's her state of mind like? I mean, is, is she suffering, I guess, is the question. Well, she's been alone for over 38 years since her tank mate basically killed himself. He, they, the Miami Sea Aquarium purchased her uh, to be a companion for a male orca that actually came from uh, the resident pod of pods of the Pacific Northwest, and they named him Hugo. They thought, well, let's have a companion for Hugo. So they they brought in Lolita Tokite, and uh, he just couldn't stand it. He kept bashing his head into the wall of the tank. Couldn't stand that she of, was there? No, he didn't like being in oh, that tank. Oh, just being in captivity. Very in the very tiny tank. If you see the f- aerial photographs of the tank that she's in, and she actually was sharing that tank with Hugo, I'm, how can two orcas fit in there? But they got, on, they got on fine, and they even understood each other. They had the same dialect, but he kept ramming his head into the wall of the tank and died of a brain aneurysm. So from from this the time is, this is incredibly sad. sad. Yeah. Uh, so so what are the chances that we can get Lolita out of there? I would say I call it bring on the blackfish effect. Yep. For people who've seen the documentary Blackfish, 
million, I can't say millions, but lots of people, thousands of people were moved by that. Millions of people saw the film and it had a severe impact on SeaWorld's attendance. Yes. To where they, they reported major losses due to lack of attendance. And, and that's what we need to do as far as bringing attention to the corporation that now owns uh, the uh, Miami Seaquarium. Now, you were saying that there have peop- been people who've, who've been prepared to buy Lolita from mm-hmm. this corporation. Mm-hmm. To, to release her, well, and the, they, they're still not wanting to let her go because she's worth so much? Yeah, the, there was a, a, a man who a long time ago offered a million dollars to the Miami Seaquarium to buy her and release her, and they just said, no, thank you. That was under a previous ownership. Now, in the last few years, it's under a different ownership. Uh, it's a, a company based out of Newport Beach, California, Palace Entertainment, and they own 20... One theme parks in the okay. in, Nor- in the United States, including Sea Life Park, which is in Hawaii, where they have uh, captive dolphins, and then they're like a, a part of Parkes Reunidos, which is in Europe, and that corporation under their title owns 39 theme parks, and so this campaign that I'm currently running is a boycott pledge letter writing campaign please so, don't go yeah where people are pledging that they will in this letter to palace entertainment and parkas you know said they will not go to any of their 60 theme parks until lolita is released so again if people want to be a part of lolita's release mm-hmm. where would they go for more information they can go to the website and i have a special page for lolita it's www.origamiwhalesproject.org forward slash lolita l-o-i TA. But if, and also if they went, I guess, to Google and they just put Lolita Orca, mm-hmm. it would probably show a link to the website as well. If they did uh, Lolita and the and 16,425 days a slave, oh. I know that's a tricky number, but if you, if you think of the number of days in 45 years, yes. all you have to do is multiply that and you get 16,425. I came up with that idea because to, it was getting to be 45 yeah. years it since the capture. It does put it in perspective. When, and, you, when you think of it that way. Yeah, that many days in a little concrete tank. And Well, we need people yeah. like you in the world just to bring awareness to what is happening. Because we all get caught up in our lives and we forget. And it's easy to get distracted by different things. It is. But, yeah. you know, it's people like you that help to create awareness. And that's part of the reason we wanted to have you here. Because we wanted you to uh-huh. be able to share your your story. and. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there's some people being inspired listening. And it's people that are that are think that are creative too. Yes. That start thinking, "Oh, what about this idea because there's been this going on for so long. How what kind of solutions can we think of?" It would be nice if we got back more to the idea of giving back more than the focus on mm-hmm. taking. Mm-hmm. Because it's not sustainable. We can't yeah. just keep taking. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. In general, mm-hmm. perpetuating the idea that collecting material things is yeah. what we should all aspire to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that when we when when we follow our passion and want to do something positive, that we get so much back from it. Yeah. Can we go back to now the the 1975 and this championship and, and okay? Uh, yeah. I, I want to finish your your story. Okay. So I want to talk about you guys are kind of I guess. 
surprising everybody with your weird styles and <laughs> thinking who are these who's the zephyr team and what are they doing uh, yeah. so take us into that moment and, and what happened that day we showed up and we saw this platform and we, you know we we had no idea that, that that's how it was going to be that that was our surface this limited space and just proceeded to do what what we'd been practicing doing that we love to do and we skated as if we were surfing but we also did our tricks too i know i did so and? I did 360s and nose wheelie and... What um, was it like with the other girls there? I mean, how did they respond to you and your, I guess, slightly outrageous style for that time? Well, I think that because they were still in the the, the mindset of the old tricks yeah. and that that's all they were doing, and then they saw that actually... I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but my style was more fluid yeah and like it was unbelievably fluid it looked like dancing yeah and that was how it was with the with the boys on the team as well and so they saw what i was doing and they saw that i got a lot of points and i was winning the freestyle and what did they say to you some of them complained none of them said anything to me directly but a couple of them went and complained to, <laughs> to the judges say? And one of the judges said that I had more style than a lot of the guys. Not necessarily the guys on my team, but the guys skating. Because they, they complained to the judge and said that I was skating like a guy. She's what skating like a that? guy. I know. What, what does that even mean? I know. What does skating like a guy, skating like a girl I wasn't mean? fitting into that female girl role at that time of, of wearing a skirt and bare feet on a skateboard and, and doing you know the little la-la tricks and stuff. And you were too much of a tomboy for that, right? I was. You wanted to take more risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so what happened that day? I won the freestyle. I won the freestyle competition. Yeah. And I didn't win the slalom, though I really believe I could have. Our team was doing so well and basically taking the, you know, just turning things around that uh, I think that so there was some politics going on where they didn't want me to win both events. And so when it came to the slalom, I qualified. I know I qualified because I went both times. There's two qualifying runs that you get through the slalom cones, and I made them both. And there was no other woman that did it both runs successfully. But I was not advanced into the finals. After that day, mm -hmm. skateboarding changed in a way forever because once people saw that you guys were winning with that kind of more street approach mm -hmm. that everybody was like, whoa, we need to do that. <laughs> do you feel like that was a pivotal moment in uh, skateboarding? I think that it it was an eye-opener to a lot of people that were still skating in the, the realm of doing the tricks the way they did. Uh, slalom was already going on, uh, but then because of the style, it was this opening of this what are they doing? And, oh, are they skating on some not flat surfaces, banks that's mm. at places like schools and things. And so then, and then it eventually evolved into pools. You're part of changing history. I suppose. <laughs> I have a couple of questions I'd love to ask you. Mm -hmm. What would you do with your last day on earth? If you knew that tomorrow was your last day, what would you do with it? I would probably hop on a jet and go to my favorite place in the southwest in the desert the red sandstone desert climb on top of one of the formations and 
and go, yeah, this is it. <laughs> Peggy, thanks so much for yeah. talking to us. Yeah. Really appreciate Thank you, it. Phil. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it. <laughs>